0: Welcome to The Provcast, the regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. I'm Managing Editor Drew Griffin. With us today in this episode, we've got a special guest from Across the Pond, uh, Executive Editor of Providence, Mark Levecki. Mark is the founding executive editor of Providence, was there at the very beginning, and is currently residing at Oxford in, uh, University in Oxford, England, where he is at the McDonald Center, is a McDonald Visiting Scholar uh, for Theology, Ethics, and Public Life at Christ Church uh, College there in Oxford. So, uh, Mark, welcome back to the States. Hey, thank you very much. Good to be here. I was the founding
1: managing editor. I was you. I wasn't yes. the founding executive editor. You put me on the pastor right. and gave me well, the title. Okay.
0: All right. Well, no, sorry. I didn't mean to... Just just keep things. Make clear. you emeritus here. Yeah. No. 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 Yeah. It's. Uh... Uh, I, I can't help but uh, look forward to my future as executive editor one day, since I'm, I'm I seem just intent on following in your footsteps. We're gonna make a home for us, right? Be beautiful,
1: right? <laughs> in the hills, two rocking chairs, a porch.
0: Great. No, yeah, it's gonna be great. Um, so uh, you know, I, I wanted to take this uh, opportunity while you were in the states uh, to uh, kind of to bring you in, and uh, you've done a number of podcasts uh, in, in the past uh, and and brought our our readers and our listeners um, uh, into kind of the, the world world of Christian realism and into the the world of of Providence, and I wanted uh, to give you maybe an opportunity to just update us a little bit on uh, what you're doing right now in um, uh, Oxford University and what took you to Oxford.
1: Yeah, I have the opportunity to go to the McDonald Center for Theology, Ethics, Public Life uh, as a visiting scholar, as I think you've said, working with Nigel Bigger, who at this point is probably the foremost uh, just war scholar uh, practicing today. Uh, Nigel invited me over to work on some publications, uh, get my academic CV sort of built back up. So the first task was to publish my dissertation or is to publish my dissertation. Uh, back in the day, the dissertation was called, I think with malice toward none, uh, the moral grounds for killing in war. Uh, we decided that wasn't terribly sellable. So we've renamed it the good kill, just war and moral injury. Uh, but it is out for review right now. Uh, So it's in the peer review process, and hopefully I get uh, some good news back in the next couple of weeks, and hopefully that is out soon. Uh, The second project that uh, I hope to have released in time for the 75th anniversary of the dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima uh, is uh, is attempting to provide a Christian argument for the morality of that attack. Um, It's been done in the past to some degree, but they've always landed in... Uh, and as you know from uh, our own work on Christian realism, there's a couple different streams of Christian realism. One of them is the Niberian stream. Uh, and the best stuff on Hiroshima has fallen in on the Niberian stance that uh, the dropping of the bomb was a lesser evil, but that it was necessary to do. Uh, I want to argue that it was the greatest possible good we could do in light of the possible circumstances. So it's not a wildly popular argument, but... Um, but I was about to okay. say it's going to really endear you to a lot of college campuses. I just need a was, tight, small group, the, group of friends, uh, <laughs> and I'm
0: good with that. You, the... you can't wait for all of the uh, invites to just flood in from <laughs> the, student the student truth organizations out. Right, must out. The right. Truth must out. So I want to have a conversation uh, today, a little bit about your your background and your past, uh, kind of how it relates to, to some of the current work that you're doing. But uh, you've got a, a unique background, uh, educational background that I think is is, is worth kind of uh, digging into a little bit, especially in your. Um, engagement that you had with the late uh, ethicist uh, Jean Bethke Elstein um, when you were doing your doctoral work at the University of Chicago. And I'm, um, you know, fascinated uh, by uh, Miss El- the late Miss Elstein, and I remember hearing her lecture when she was alive, and I and, uh, remember, you know, her her words and uh, her, her her mindset and the, just the way in which she articulated her, her position um, had a, a profound effect on me. And like it, it, it kind of imprinted uh, a, a lot in the way that I, I thought about ethics and and a public life, especially, and just kind of being involved in the public sphere, and so you know, Providence, if it exists to uh, you know equip the American mind to engage the real world, it's it does that best, I think, by by bringing out voices like hers and like yours, and and um, you know, it's it's often been said that you learn a lot about a culture not by what they talk about, but by what they don't. Right. right, what's mm-hmm. missing in a culture, what's what's absent in a conversation, often shows what people are taking for granted. So that's, I think sure what's great about, about you know uh, Providence is that we're we're it's, a lot of times we're talking about things that other people aren't talking about, but I don't think that that's a bad thing. I think that's a good thing, right? And so um, talk to me a little bit about kind of your uh, your your past engagement with Elstein, and and talk about your relationship uh, that, that you had with her as as she was your advisor. Uh, while you were getting your, your PhD work, and just how that was formative for you, how um, maybe some of what you learned from her and, and how that's informed you as, as you've gone on to not only be a part of our uh, community here at Providence, but now to uh, be in Oxford.
1: Sure. Uh, I, I sort of want to go way back uh, in order to come forward to Elstein, so indulge me for a moment. Sure. Um, I was born. I'm not going to go that far back. <laughs> uh, I had an undergraduate obsession uh, with the Holocaust. Don't really know why somebody could say, oh, it was the Holy Spirit. I have no idea. I was preoccupied by his study of the Shoah. Uh, studied as an undergrad, um, was convicted. I was, you know, I fancied myself an atheist or an agnostic, something terribly sexy and, you know, erudite and all this nonsense. Uh, but I had a very good Christian friend who was a biology professor at St. Olaf. And in the course of my studying the Holocaust, he challenged that my hatred for what the Nazis did was basis. I was an atheist. I didn't have categories to adjudicate right from wrong, good from evil, all of that. That helped sort of shove me into a a, a spiritual search, uh, which eventually led to me procrastinating Christianity and responsibility and all sorts of things and going overseas and I moved to Bratislava, Slovakia, just to teach English, uh, but really to get away from things. Uh, but in the course of that, you know, things caught up to me. I became a Christian. Fast forward a few years, and I find myself leading uh, tours of the former concentration camps at Auschwitz-Birkenau for young Eastern European Christians and American Christians. And very quickly, I uh, was confronted with questions such as, what ought Christians to do about something like this? And I would ask, well, what do you mean? They said, well, we're supposed to be pacifists. And I'm a fairly young Christian, but uh, this was news to me. They said, "Well, Who's supposed to be a pacifist? Well, we are. And I would ask, well, why? They said, well, you know, Jesus was. And, you know, just like uh, I was filled with trepidation when I first was told by you know, a well-intentioned Baptist that, uh, you know, now that I'm a Christian, I can't drink beer, I had to do my Bible search. Uh, you know, and that led to a, a fascination with ethics. Um, uh, the anecdote I like to use is uh, I had the opportunity to be at the 50th anniversary events commemorating the end of uh, Auschwitz-Birkenau, the liberation of, of the camps. And at the end of the formal ceremonies, they began to recite the names of all of the lost and they had committed to reading the names of all the lost until they had exhausted the list. Uh, after the, 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 the reading started, I toured the camp. I was there for several hours. I left as I walked away. You know, the sound of the names receded into the distance. It kept going on and on and on, name after name after name after name. At some point, I thought, how, how long did that reading of names go on? And assuming, uh, which is untrue, but assuming we have the names of all 1.2 million people killed just at Auschwitz-Birkenau, that one camp. And assuming it took a a second to read every single name, it would take 13.8 days to read all those names. So here I am, a young Christian, being told by other Christians that we're supposed to be pacifists, which I translated to mean Christians have nothing uh, practical or efficacious to offer in order to stop a 14th day of names. And I thought, that can't be true. And so that led to a study of ethics Uh, that led to finding, uh, you know, not a few, but not a plethora of serious Christian thinkers who were engaged in the intersection of faith and and government power or faith in martial life, uh, faith in the profession of arms. Uh, I wasn't much of an academic growing up. I was encouraged by people to go and study with the best possible person that I could. So I thought, I'm going to study with this guy, Paul Ramsey. I really like his stuff. Turns out he'd been dead for a decade or two. But this other person, this is Jean Beth Gielstein, she's really good. And so I was encouraged to go and study with her, but I was really disappointed because I was also told, study with somebody really good, but study at the best school you can. And again, I wasn't much of an academic, but I discovered she taught at some place called the University of Chicago. I thought this was a community college, just wasn't going to cut it. One thing after another, discovered she's still alive and the University of Chicago is really good. I wrote her. She invited me to apply. Uh, And so I got in somehow, I think life experience and all of that. Uh, Jean Beth Gaelstein. She was short. She was feisty. uh, She pulled no punches. uh, She was winsome. She was gracious. She had friends on uh, both sides of the aisle from every political spectrum, uh, every theological fidelity, uh, atheists. uh, She made friends wherever she went. She made enemies. uh, But she made friends wherever she went. Uh, from people of all stripes, Um, you never left her presence not having learned something new, uh, especially about the application of ancient truth for uh, contemporary life. Uh, She was absolutely adamant that faith has something to say about practical life, and she instilled that into her students. So you study with Alschain,
0: and you um, you know begin kind of working on uh, studying uh, just war and 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 pouring over that and and moral injury. Um, what I mean. Other than the the kind of tendency among Christians to be overly like pacifist, what was mm-hmm. one of the things that like really? Um, what was one of the voids that you were hoping to fill? Like when you looked across the um, you know uh, unoccupied space in in the intellectual environment of kind of uh, American Christianity, did mm-hmm. you see you know the kind of massive gaping holes where there is a lack of articulation of classic Christian perspective, um, uh, you know that were being filled with pacifism? Like what kind of spurred you on? to then reach into focusing on just war, focusing on moral injury, um, and writing about that, uh, you know, managing, editing uh, this publication, uh, concerned often with that, like, what kind of spurred you on to actually
1: act and, and um, take part in the greater conversation? Right, sure. Uh, th- this goes back to maybe my first encounter with Elstein in some ways. And, you know, she had always written on just war and these types of issues. Uh, but you asked about some of the gaping holes, and I think one of the gaping holes uh, within the Christian Academy is that it's not, especially in top universities, is the the type of research, the type of writing that is often done uh, is, is sometimes, you know, impenetrable, inaccessible to sort of somebody without specialist training, uh, and it doesn't need to be, and for L. Shane, it never was. The first time I ever met her, go into her office, we have our conversation about what my proposed course of study is, what exams I think I'm going to take, do I have any dissertation ideas, yes I do, here they are, in a very practical academic conversation about what my, my next few years are going to look like. And at the end of it, you know, I, I, had, I had done my job as a, as, a, as a budding scholar, I felt, you know, I've covered all the, all the things. She asks me at the end, okay, but what's really the motivation for all of this? You know, and now I'm at a crossroads. I can either give her another academic answer or I could actually tell her, like, the truth. And so I said, well, really? And She said, well, oh, really. And so I reached into my bag and I pulled out a book. And I had a placeholder in my book. And it was a picture of my two kids. And I put it on the table in front of her. And I said, well, that's my motivation. And she looks over and she picks up and she says something about munchkins or something like this. And she says, well, if that's your attitude, and she reaches down and she picks up her purse. She always carries this massive handbag. She starts rifling through it. And I, I, I figure she's about to mace me or something. And, you know, she's moving th- through her stuff. And if you knew her, she she knew everybody. And so, you know, I'm expecting to see autographed pictures of the Pope and the Dalai Lama and all these people. she pulls out pictures of her grandkids and start plunking them down, dunk, 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 right in front of me. She goes, ah, we're going to get along fine. And so, for her, if the academic world had nothing to say to practical life, um, to quotidian everyday concerns, then it was crap. You know, just it's it's useless. It's interesting for intellectual communi- er, conversation, but you know, it, it it bears no fruit. It does no good. So, what are the what are the practical aspects of the, of the ethical conversation? Uh, and for me, it was always this this impasse that I often saw in the church between. You know, the sense that, as Christians, we're called to love, uh, love full stop. Uh, But at the same time, we sense that we're supposed to stop 14th days of names, right? Uh, And some Christians simply felt that that was an impasse. Either, because of love, you don't do anything to stop those 14th days, except, you know, things like prayer and... um, you know, trying to alleviate grievance and injustice and and good, hearty things, but they don't always end up being efficacious because our enemies have a vote and whether or not hostilities continue. Uh, or Christians who think, okay, uh, we are supposed to love, but that's impractical. We are supposed to be responsible, and that's kind of more practical. We can kind of do some of that. And if we go for love, we're not going to get it. We're not going to be responsible either. But if we go for a responsibility, well, maybe we could re- we could season that with a little bit of love, qualify it with love, so we'll get a little bit of both, imperfectly, but a little bit of both. And so they lead these kind of bifurcated existences, where you 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 know kind of put love on the back burner, pursue responsibility. I found that dissatisfying. So my initial idea for working with Gene was going to be, what does love have to say to war? And so my question was something like, can you love your enemies to death? Is that possible? In the course of sort of researching this and trying to find a more, you know, uh, sort of manageable narrative frame, I was at an ethics conference, and I ran across this term, moral injury. Uh, Back in the day, there was a VA psychiatrist named Jonathan Shea, and he did a lot of work with uh, PTSD, combat veterans, a post-traumatic stress disorder, diagnosed veterans. Uh, and there was a, a pool of veterans that he would work with from uh, combat in Vietnam. All of them had been diagnosed with PTSD. And most of them manifest classical signs of post-traumatic stress disorder coming from a life threat trauma. So hypervigilance, paranoia, these sorts of things. But there was another cluster of characteristics that not all of them shared. And these characteristics were things like deep shame, crippling sorrow, remorse, um, you know, deep, deep depression. And it was, it was so much so that he thought there might be something else going on here. So he started to dig deeper, and he started finding commonalities. All of the people who manifest shame and remorse and regret had a kill in their background. It might be a legitimate taking of the enemy. It might be an accidental killing of a civilian. It might be an atrocity. They all had it. Not everybody who has PTSD had a kill. Some of them did. But everybody who suffered from these types of, of uh, sort of soul wounds had a kill in their background. So he thought this is something different. And he started to to look for that in other pools of combat veterans. And he decided to call this something, uh, call it something else, a a subset of post-traumatic stress disorder. He coined the phrase moral injury. Um, And there's been different definitions of moral injury over the years, but the one that I've fastened on uh, from most of my work is that a moral injury is doing or allowing something to be done or witnessing something that goes against a deeply held moral conviction. And so, for those Christians who look at the life of the law of love and the law of responsibility, and decide you gotta kind of have to bracket love in order to be responsible, uh, what they say about this is you can't move through history trying to be responsible without incurring moral guilt. If moral injury is doing or allowing you to be done something that goes against a deeply held moral conviction, then for a lot of Christians, killing in combat, for instance, uh, goes against the law of love, so it is a moral wrong but it's necessary, so you do it. But you're doing something that goes against a deeply held moral conviction. Uh, so it makes the business of warfighting morally injurious by definition. The problem with this is that, I've already noted that the number one predictor for moral injury is having killed in combat. Turns out, the number one predictor for suicide among combat veterans is moral injury. So you could summarize all that by saying the number one predictor for suicide among combat veterans is having killed in combat. So the very business of war fighting you know, it leads to what we've seen as a dramatic uptick in suicide among combat veterans. Now, if that's just simply the way it is, then okay. You know, maybe we proceed in a particular way. But what if our intellectual theological tradition says something else? And so the dissertation became all about trying to find out what does our theology have to say about killing in war? Is it by definition morally injurious, or is there another answer? And I think that's
0: one of the what fascinates me about your writing and about your research, just about this this uh, you know kind of point of view that you elucidate, is that there is um, there's an inevitability, right, to our our function here as. Uh, uh, image bearers of God, right? And so regardless of whether or not you're a, a Christian or a believer in Christianity, uh, you know, as Christians, you and I, and and many of the people at Providence are going to say there's an objective fact that we're here, we're made in the image of God, and that both carries with it the fact that uh, in that image we have certain responsibilities, right? We're here um, to be provident, right? That's the whole point of the magazine, why it was so named, is to be provident to, to provide for creation in a penultimate way Mm -hmm. uh, to provide for creation uh, but then also that that uh, being made in the image of God, that there's an inherent worth and a value right. in uh, every human soul, uh, whether they're your enemy yep. or not, whether they right. look like you or not, whether they're a migrant child or a billionaire, mm-hmm. like they're, they they have or an Adolf, an, Hitler, or or an Adolf Hitler, yeah, they 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 are made in the image of God, yep. and so they have an inherent worth, and so there is something instinctive there that oddly enough, whether if you are you know an agnostic or someone who doesn't believe in God or any kind of objective truth, you still have to Explain that, you know, people who aren't religious, when they engage in killing, when they engage in in killing for uh, a right or righteous purpose uh, in war... Still suffer this this kind of psychological right. Uh, effect, right. right? Of having marred an image bearer, right? Having killed or injured someone who is also an image bearer, that there there's a weight there that um, instinctively we recoil against, and, and we we have to fight with, and and we have to struggle with, and yet. Part of being provident, part of being an image-bearer of God and having a certain amount of governing responsibility means at times, especially if you subscribe to the Bible and you subscribe to the New Testament and you read passages like Romans 13, of where like governments which are made up of people who are image bearers, right, are in, in charge of administering justice and punishing those who are doing wrong and rewarding those who are doing good and bearing the sword, right? And bearing the sword is a, a violent image, right? A sword is not, you know, but for... for cutting know. wheat. Right, exactly. And um, uh, it's not been hammered into a plowshare yet, right? It's, right. A, it's a, It still has that kind of purpose. And so it's uh, there is this conundrum of where it's like we can't escape... This responsibility, whether we right. are coming at it from uh, kind of that provident governing, um, you know, administering justice end, or if you're just being an obedient citizen and you filled out your draft card and you get drafted and you get mm-hmm. sent into mm-hmm. war, that um, the, um, uh, you, you can't escape it. So what since we can't escape this, right, since we can't escape this responsibility, I mean, what are some of the, the practical ways that you can see that we can get this this message, right, this truth, this kind of historic Christian tradition and understanding uh, to those who mm-hmm. are need it most, right? right? So you've got you've got literally tens of thousands of veterans due to the fact that we've been uh, at war for the last 15 years, 16 years uh, in the Middle East in an active war. We still suffer casualties, names right. are still coming in of, of service members who are Dying in the line of uh, of duty. Um, How do you get this message there uh, in an environment that uh, instinctively anymore kind of pushes back against uh, you know anything that reeks of Christian exclusivity and and Christian that kind of exclusive truth? How do you begin to get that message out there to those who need it?
1: Yeah, great question. Um, I mean, I, I think the first thing is a little bit more conceptual rather than the practical. Uh, I lived in Slovakia, Eastern Europe for 12 years. Uh, I did a number of different things, but in the end I ran a, help, helped run uh, a study community that simply tried to answer questions that Eastern Europeans were really asking. And I think that's I think that's important. Um, I know somebody who ran a, another seminar. Uh, he ran it for you know, he would do these three week seminars where they would explore the Christian life. And in the uh, reviews at the end of one of the three week sessions, somebody wrote, Lots of great answers, thanks. I wish you would have asked me a question. And that stuck with me. So I think the first thing we have to do is to, is to provoke an awareness um, of the need for what it is we're trying to say. Uh, some war fighters register uh, you know, the, the pain of wearing the cloth of the nation, uh, the, the, the inherent, um, uh, you know, the, the, the problematic aspects of, of deploying violence. Um, It's helpful to bring them to a point where they recognize that uh, the pain they're feeling is actually more complex. Um, You know, so for instance, some people will simply challenge me and say, how can you as a Christian uh, uh, sanction the killing of somebody made in the image of God, as you've elucidated the the value of being made in that image? And my answer to that uh, is, is I I say, well, simply, I wouldn't sanction killing somebody made in the image of God unless... That person made in the image of God is kicking in the face of somebody else in the image, made in the image of God, and they won't stop. Um, what am I supposed to do there? Because I am supposed to love the neighbor who is kicking in the face of the other neighbor who am I also supposed to love. So I have a conundrum. I can't apparently love both in exactly the same way, in exactly the same instant. How do I love them differently? I have to love them. This is clear, but what do I do? Um, just, just to try to provoke the awareness of the fact that we have limited options. You can, you know, for instance, this book that I'm doing on the dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima, you can denounce the dropping of the bomb. That's fair. Um, now I want you to set your eyes on some other option and defend it and make a moral accounting for the costs of that option. It's like those people who complain about, oh, this movie wasn't nominated for an Oscar. Fair enough. But before you demand that movie be put in, you have to tell me which of the other ones should be pulled out. That's sometimes the harder job. We have only so many options. Uh, so how do we provoke an awareness of the need to even ask these questions? So that's part of the work, I think, of Providence, part of the work of uh, of this new project that we're launching, uh, which is going to be a digital version of Providence, uh, designed exclusively for those who are the cloth of the nation and anybody sort of as a second tier charged with the moral care of our war fighters. Uh, so chaplains and-, and Chaplains and what, primarily, yeah. yep. Uh, and then anybody really responsible for command structures, but yes, aimed uh, overtly at chaplains uh, to help equip them with the ability to, to take the you know, the rich resources, the patrimony of the Christian intellectual tradition, and intersect it with the martial life, with the, the profession of arms. Uh, our chaplains are, you know, as, as much as anybody in the military profession, um, you know, they're overworked, uh, they're understaffed. There's a lot to do. Uh, you know, they, they are making critical decisions and, and uh, in, encountering people in, in critical moments and time-compressed situations of, of high stakes. Uh, and they are asked questions. And some of the questions are, are basic. Chaplain, can I kill? You know, chaplain, I grew up with the idea that, you know, thou shalt not murder, uh, but here it seems to be the matrix for success. You know, sometimes fairly basic questions that could be adjudicated simply on, on looking at the semantics, the differences between murder and other forms of killing, things like this. A lot of chaplains are simply not equipped. Uh, they come from uh, backgrounds in which you know, they've qualified for the chaplaincy, but there's no theological test to enter the chaplaincy. Uh, they don't have to prove that they are well-armed with the rich resources of their faith to be able to, to, to provide for the moral care of their soldiers. Uh, And a lot of them feel the need. And so they're looking for something that can help them. So the idea is simple. Provide a a, a digital journal. Why digital? Digital because it's easily and freely distributed to chaplains worldwide in an instant. Uh, Very accessible. It'll be a shorter version of Providence, more accessible. It'll draw some of the articles from the print journal, from the the online uh, website, uh, it'll provide resource pages, maybe book reviews with even, you know, study guides and, and chapter questions just to guide, you know, maybe group readings. It'll have movie reviews, again, with study guides and, and review questions. Um, maybe a QA and a section where chaplains can engage one another, um, engage with ethicists and, uh, you know, sort of moral theologians. Uh, you know, the idea is to provide a, a place, kind of a flag, uh around which uh, those in the profession of arms can congregate, to ask questions, to find answers, to encourage one another, to learn from one another, all of that. If, if Providence, sort of writ large, is about championing Christian realism as the flag around which a new community of believers can can congregate, this is that, but very specifically for the profession of arms. Um, and more than that, in some ways, um, I see sort of three kind of epics in a combat veteran's life. There's there's uh, deployment, of course, and so this magazine is, is ostensibly aimed at those uh, currently in the profession of arms, caring for those in the profession of arms. Um, but as I like to say, uh, just like the time to develop a sexual ethic is not the backseat of a car, deployment is not the time to start thinking about the morality of killing or the martial life. So there's the, the epic before deployment or boot camp. Um, how can our magazine, or digital magazine, how can that equip families pastors, youth group leaders, anybody you know, in, in uh, civil society charged with the moral formation of our young? How can we equip them to help morally form our young boys and increasingly girls to become men and women who can handle the rigors of combat? Um, they will be morally bruised. Combat is god-awful. Um, no, matter how, no, no matter how morally appropriate it might be to make a particular kill, it should still register as a grief. We would rather not have to do this. But it doesn't have to register as a moral evil. Um, guilt is, or uh, Grief is not guilt. So how can we, how can we provide uh, resources to help our boys and girls grow into the men and women with that kind of confidence? So there's before combat or before deployment or boot camp, there's downrange, there's the military life itself, and then the third epic is afterward. So I like to uh, invoke uh, Steve Irwin, the old crocodile hunter, One of the things he would say is, before you jump on the back of a crocodile, you better have a plan for jumping off. So soldiers redeploy home, jumping off the crocodile's back, and they need to have a place to land, Um, maybe where they can ask the questions that they have, maybe where they could simply be reintegrated into civilian life, Uh, maybe where they can tell some of their stories. Uh, But you ask a warfighter, you ask a chaplain, is the church in your hometown ready for that? Are they ready to receive these men and women home and hear their stories? Uh, Because even the clinicians will say, like, we can only do so much as clinicians. Uh, You don't find healing in a clinic. You find it in a community. Uh, But the communities aren't ready to receive these men and women home. We have all the best intentions. Thank you for your service. Come on in. But we can't hear these stories. We're not equipped. And a lot of times, those communities aren't equipped because I mean, these are the same communities
0: that are producing not only the chaplains Correct. but the soldiers. Correct. And it's uh, so to the extent to which the soldiers are ill-equipped and right. throughout all phases, their communities are ill-equipped. Right. And ironically, like. Uh, where I think the value of our own uh, journal Providence and just the conversations that we're trying to engender fall is that you know we exist in a, a world of such moral ambiguity, right? And there is such a lacking of definition on the whole of of what, you know, good and evil are. Yep. Uh, and, and in fact, those even those terms are, are yep. basically triggers right. just for whole yourself. communities, yep. right, that, right, that you are um, an objectivist morally, that you have some kind of weird standard that's, you know, derivative of a religion or, or your own personal opinion, perhaps, and... That is, uh, you know, so much of culture is pushing against that and, and kind of kicking against those particular goads that it's it's um, and yet that is the culture that is going to we're going to pull the next generation of fighters from. Right. Correct. And so ironically, when you look at, you know, our, our past wars and past military engagements. It's um, you know I feel like the the future is going to be different and and not only indifferent in the type of, of wars that we're going to fight and the conflicts we're going to engage in and the you know the technological aspects and, and the, those kinds of things the theaters and and whatnot but it's it's literally the 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 metal of the men and the women that we're that we're sending out hmm. and it's mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. what do they have to be brave for right. who do they have to be brave for or you know if if we kill the soul of a country and and the value of it in in their eyes, but then you're going to ask them to go and fight for that country and right. defend that country mm-hmm. and its ideals, mm-hmm. and so what if if Elstein were you know alive yeah. right. right today right. in in the in this current kind of Trump era, which has this uh, weird kind of uh, incongruity of both being very pro America, you know, pro kind of America first and and all of that, and yet you know Trump in and of himself is very down on America, like his entire um, kind of ethos of running for office and being elected was America's. Awful it needs. To, it's no longer great. America is no longer great. You know, we no longer fight great wars. We no longer are viewed as great. I will make it great again. That's kind of his, his whole premise. So, it, it, America. It's it's hard to see how, in, from his perspective, America can be great, but then also need to be great again. You know, it's um, he he tears it down in order to kind of build it up. Um, if Elsting were alive, you know, today, uh, post Obama years and into this you know new kind of era of American first kind of nationalism. I mean, where where do you think that she would fall, erect her voice from the grave here, and, yeah, right. and kind of like where do you well, think I mean, she would you know, speak
1: into this? Her quintessential nuance, I mean, you know, the first thing she would want to do, she always said the first thing, the first responsibility of a good Christian ethicist is to get as accurate an accounting of the facts on the ground as possible. So she would ask, what about the current climate? She would probably look back to Obama, who made a lot of the same rhetoric about, well, you know, I want to make America that I could be proud of, this sort of thing. So we've we've started with this sort of both dissing and building up, and and we, we developed something of an American pedigree for this, it seems, among our national politicians. Things aren't good, they gotta be better. In one sense, that's as old as politics. Um, I can make this place better, right? Um she, she would be I mean, I think she would be split on Trump, right? She would, I suspect, this is putting words into her mouth, she would, you know, find aspects of his personality reprehensible, aspects of his, you know, uh, his character reprehensible. Um, she would probably appreciate some of the, um, kind of gambles that he's willing to take. You know, he, he's willing to think outside the box. She would find that salutary. Um, she would deplore, I mean, the main thing she would deplore is the incredible divisiveness of the political climate, which isn't due exhaustively to Trump. It's due to the people, the anti-Trumpers, it's due to the progressives. Uh, when, when, you know, a few years before she died, probably maybe as as much as a decade before she died, uh, nobody knew who she was in terms of where she sat on the political spectrum. She would write for the Weekly Standard. She would write for National Review. She would write for the the Nation. She you know, on the left and on the right, she wrote for both. And people simply welcomed her voice because she was willing to describe reality and then to critique it. Uh, and so sometimes she took swipes at the right. Sometimes she took swipes at the left. That didn't matter to her. She simply wanted to, the best that she was able to see it, speak the truth. I think she would deplore that we seem to see very little of that zeal anywhere anymore. And and, and that was in place, or the the deterioration of that was in place even before Obama. She was increasingly unable to write for a lot of left-wing magazines. He simply stopped publishing her stuff. Um you know, the right can be mendacious, uh, but it seems to me that, you know, the progressives have a corner on that market. Um, the, you know, the, she would write things that were from, a, uh, you know, from, the, from sort of, you know, she had two minds. She was a woman of the left, she was a woman of the right. Um, despite her being a woman of the left, the Weekly Standard, for instance, would still publish her. Um, but because she was sometimes a woman of the right, other magazines wouldn't. Uh, I think she would deploy that that seems to have bifurcated to the nth degree right? Nobody's listening to anybody. Um, Part of what attracted me to her is she said, look, and and she was quoting somebody on this, but, you know, it's the old idea that real disagreement is actually incredibly difficult to achieve. Because before I can know, actually, that I disagree with you, uh, I got to listen to you, right? I got to shut up, listen to you, then you have to shut up. I ought to then respond by asking, is this what you've said? This is what I've heard. Is this what you meant? Clarify the positions. Then you've got to be quiet so I can articulate my view. I mean, it it, it takes a, an incredible amount of discipline, and it takes what used to be called love. Right. Well, and there's nothing uh,
0: there's nothing about modern discourse that that feeds into this. Yeah. Everything is you know uh, constructed around very short conversations, uh, sound bites, uh, tweets, you know, social media posts, short videos that are that are you know clickbait. Mm-hmm. That nothing about our you know common discourse uh, encourages this, other than maybe
1: long form you know uh, pieces in, in journals like ours or right. conversations that's like right. the one that we're having right. right now. She, she also would have, you know, it's, it's good to say, you know, this motto of make America great again. Um, I'm sure she would have, you know, snickered over it and she would have had her critique. Uh, but then she would immediately caution. Uh, and, and we've, we've said this several times in our magazine in print and online, um, that great is great is good, but it's not enough. And so she would press, and she would she would invoke the Spider-Man ethic. And some people, you know, denigrated her for this, but she believed deeply in the Spider-Man ethic. With great responsibility, or with great power comes great responsibility. Um, and that responsibility, you, you go back to nine eleven when those buildings fell. She turned to a friend and she said, "Now we remember what governments are for." And what she meant by this is governments are they have a, a primary responsibility to care for the political goods of their political constituency. Um, they're here to protect. Um, you know the the justice, the security, and the peace of the nation. So that's a responsibility, uh, and one can do that and make America great. But she would say, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. That that has to move beyond our shores. And so she would say, great is good, but we also actually it's so it's good it's good to be great, but it's great to be good. So she would say that goodness comes from recognizing that this is not a zero sum game. Right, I can't be secure only in as much as you know, Iraq or Syria or Iran or England or whoever else are weak, right? She would say, "There's actually there's security to go around." Uh, and in fact, when America projects itself as a guarantor uh, of of freedom and justice and peace, or to the degree that we're able, uh, we promote our own security because you know we develop a reputation uh, for good in the world. And of course, this could be taken advantage of. Um, we see it when. Iraqi soldiers during the 2003 invasion would um, you know, uh, fake surrender so that our, our Marines and, and soldiers would approach them, Then they would pull out weapons and shoot us. You don't fake surrender to the Soviets. like That wouldn't have worked. They'd have gunned you down. Um, they're giving us something of a compliment by thinking that a fake surrender might bring us within killing range. So our reputation can be taken advantage of, but I think our reputation also simply promotes trust um, and promote stability. Uh, so, great and good aren't zero-sum games. We can do both. Um, good to be great. It's great to be good. Because of this, I think she she would critique some of the you know the bombast and the style of Trump, where his you know some people see it as kind of a strategic ambiguity. Uh, strategic recklessness keep, keep keep everybody on their heels, not really knowing what we think. And there's probably value to that, and she would probably mine that. Uh, but it's also <laughs> it can be incredibly destabilizing. If if NATO, if Europe, uh, if doesn't believe that we have their back anymore, um, then they might begin to try to, to protect themselves, you know, build up their own militaries, which might be a good thing. Maybe they should pay more than their share, all of that. But the American security umbrella that has kept the free world free um, you know, since the end of World War II has its values in being a stabilizing force. It becomes our own, as we've said in our Declaration of Foreign Policy, it becomes our own outer perimeter of security. Um, and anything that dismantles that or jeopardizes that, you would see as a loss Um, So I wish she was here because she would have, I think, a fascinating critique of the Trump administration, um, a a strong, tireless critique of the anti-Trump regime. uh, And she would be a voice, uh, you know, of reason uh, in the chaos, which probably means she would be hated and denigrated and boycotted and all sorts of things. Um, So it would have been fascinating.
0: Well, I do wish uh, uh, Elstein was uh, was still here. I'm grateful that there are uh, kind of continuers of, of her legacy and mm-hmm. and uh, custodians of her legacy. Uh, you know, she. Uh, that's the great thing of when you um, uh, align your life with kind of the objective truth that is timeless is that it outlives its, its, yeah, uh, right. uh, its uh, purveyors and speakers, and, and so it um, can be carried on and the torch can be passed. And uh, I, I see you as very much a, a part of that, and so I'm grateful uh, for your continued uh, you know, scholarship. I
1: interject, there's me. There's Dan Strand, he writes for us, right? Mm-hmm. He was inspired. Right. John Gallagher, he was one of her students. I think he's done some stuff for us. He's certainly right. spoken at our National Security Conference. You know, if you look at a number of the people that have, that have, have have you know, stood around the flag that Providence is trying to raise, there are people that have been affected by Gene. You know, and, and because they were affected by Gene, they were affected by Thomas Aquinas and Augustine, right? We stand in a long right. patrimony of good, solid Christian thinkers who take ancient truth about the triune character, you know, character of God, uh, and his relevance for modern life. And it is timeless. And you see that it's, Makes you weep. It's beautiful. <laughs> well, I would love to continue uh,
0: our conversation. There's some noise in the background, perhaps, that you might hear, and it's uh, the launching of our new offices here in D.C. Uh, so we've got to uh, begin to commence that party. Um, Mark, we're grateful for your uh, continued participation with us, grateful for the work that you're doing in Oxford, and hope that uh, you join us again soon.
1: Well, thank you, Drew. I'm grateful that you exist, because by your existence, I can go to Oxford, and I can well, do what I'm, I'm doing. You've so taken, grateful to exist. You've so. taken the help. <laughs> with the ship. And I appreciate that. I'm excited to see where Providence goes. So. so am I. All right. Thank you, Mark. Carry it forward.
0: Thank you for listening to The Provcast, a regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. You can find us online at providencemag.com. Follow us on Twitter at Prov Magazine and download this podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.